Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. You might have heard the line, attachment is the root of suffering. It comes from the Buddha, but you don't have to be a Buddhist to recognize that becoming overly attached to a particular outcome, person, or even view of yourself can lead to a lot of suffering. And there's this particular feeling of grasping or clinging, a kind of tightness, that's closely associated, at least for me, with stress. But at the same time, there are clearly things that seem pretty sensible to be attached to, right? From our close relationship partners, to friends and family, to living as a reasonably moral person in the world. And that's even setting aside the basic things, like having enough food or a secure place to live. So what's the problem with attachment? What differentiates problematic forms of attachment from more useful ones? How can we recognize the difference between these two things? And then the big question, what can we do to become a bit less attached over time? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And to help us learn how to do all of that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I am thrilled about this topic. Yeah, very much the same. Was really looking forward to talking with you about it. And I basically just want to have a conversation about attachment with you today, because mm. I think that it is such a big topic, yeah. and also one that there are a lot of misconceptions about. Yes. But before we get into it, just a couple of quick reminders. First, remember to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're currently listening to it on. It really helps us out. And then second, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show, and you'll receive bonuses like deep dives into the research behind each episode, transcripts, and ad-free versions of everything that we create here. So I want to start this by actually sharing a quote from the Dalai Lama, of all people. Don't try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you already are. And this isn't really intended as a Buddhism episode in any sense, but the investigation of the nature of attachment and all of the suffering that comes out of it is core to that tradition. And Buddhism is around 2,500 years old, so a lot of smart people have been thinking about this stuff for a really long time. And it makes sense for us to try to learn a little bit from them where we can. So that said, whenever I talk with a friend about anything Buddhisty for longer than five minutes, some version of two questions almost always come up. The first one is, well, Forrest, what does life as suffering mean? And then the second one is, if attachment is the root of suffering, wait, why is attachment bad? Are you telling me I should have no attachments? So, Dad, what's the problem with attachment? Uh, I, well, I do want to start with your first statement. And to make a point that the Buddha taught in a primarily oral tradition in which there was very little writing, so the earliest surviving mm -hmm. written record came in a few centuries after his death. And... Then more broadly than the question of what did the Buddha actually think and teach, beyond that, what's really true? So in yeah. the spirit that he taught of empiricism, of seeing for yourself, of judging things on their own merits, we're going to have this exploration here. Yeah. So in that context, then, the common statement, life is suffering, is thoroughly not Buddhist. <laughs> so right <laughs> off the top, that's not what the Buddha didn't say, right? If I could just do a quick summary here of the Four Noble Truths, uh, which are basically the frame of this conversation. The first of these is that, yes, there is suffering. Now, suffering is a very broad term. It's probably not the best translation, 
of the term that arose in the language of early Buddhism, which is Pali, spelled P-A-L-I, there is unsatisfactoriness, there is discontent, there is disappointment. And imagine the Buddha living and teaching in a time 2,500 years ago in which slavery was rampant, injustice was everywhere, patriarchal, wars, brutalities, no modern Cast medicine. Caste system in India. It was a thing. mess. There is a lot of suffering. So just the statement, yeah. And you, you could look at the people walking down the street, look at your face in the mirror. There is, fill in the blank, there is suffering, there is discontent. Okay. Second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering in our own psychology. It is not the only cause, but it is a primary major cause. And that cause is routinely translated as craving. Probably a better translation is along the lines of clinging, which is then sometimes mistranslated as attachment. And right there, we start to see some of the problems. It's interesting that the root of the word in Pali for craving, tanha being the word, is thirst. There is a kind of a sense of something missing, something wrong. Third noble truth, the good news now, there is an end to this craving and thus an end to the suffering. And then the fourth noble truth describes a very pragmatic, psychological, practical, eightfold path that embodies and leads to a gradual reduction over time of suffering and its causes and gradually replaces them over time with happiness and welfare. So that's the overall frame. And then people can step back and see for themselves. Interestingly, in terms of the life is suffering statement, which I myself have heard from various Buddhist teachers, I think there are these statements sometimes that are like needlepoint samplers put up on the wall, and then people stop thinking about them. Well, life is not suffering. Life is just life. To suffer, you have to have a nervous system capable of experiences. Do bacteria suffer? They don't have a nervous system. Does corn suffer? No. So <laughs> life doesn't suffer. Uh, that's going to be, all right, I'm sorry, Dad, just not to cut you off here, but that's going to be the pull quote from this episode. Does corn suffer? I'm, I'm ready for that one. <laughs> okay, sorry. Now, that's, that's like a Zen koan right there. Does corn suffer? <laughs> you're totally right. And you're going to have to interrupt me because, of course, you're just going to tap the play button, and there's so many points here that I'm going to try yeah, to move through quickly. Yeah, this is a really dense territory that you're that you're already moving through. And just to highlight one thing that you're saying, there are a lot of people who translate the first noble truth as life is suffering. And I agree with you that like it's not the best translation of that. And much in the same way, I agree with you that like attachment might maybe not be quite the perfect translation of that yeah. word. I actually think that thirst is the best translation. Yeah. Like a thirsting, a hungering, that yeah. craving, clinging that yeah. you're talking about. But yeah, anyway, so like these interpretations of the language are out there, and it's really interesting how much the language guides our understanding exactly. of the territory and of what we should be doing about any of yeah. this. If I could invite people listening right now, in the spirit of the Buddha, as well as all kinds of other people, including therapists like me, look directly <laughs> into your own experience. Yeah. Right now, what are you experiencing? Probably, it's kind of like a mosaic. There's a lot there or a tapestry yeah. with many threads. And it may be that in there is some inherent pain. Maybe your back is hurting because you're dealing with that. Or in the background of your emotion is a sorrowful heartache for the state of the world. What also is there? 
There are many tiles in the mosaic of consciousness almost all the time that have no negative affect in them. There's nothing unpleasant about them. There's no suffering in them. There's just neutral perception of the room around you alongside certain things that maybe are are enjoyable, such as hopefully, to some extent, listening to this podcast. So it's foolish to say life is suffering, but it's equally foolish to say there is no suffering. Yeah, yeah, totally. I love that. So then the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? And now we're really into the pragmatics of what are the causes of suffering, particularly that suffering that is added to the inherent physical and emotional pain of being a living animal in this world. And this is where the Buddha made a really useful distinction between the first darts and the second darts of life. For example, if someone drops a brick on your foot, that pain is inevitable. There is that kind of pain. There is the pain of aging, disease, death. There is the pain of losing those you love. There is the pain of compassion. Incompassion is a kind of pain in which we have empathy for the suffering of others. All right. Then there's also the second darts and third and fifth, the ones we add ourselves. Let's say a brick lands on your foot, there's the immediate physical pain, but then we start adding our reactions, our anger, our sense of indignation. How dare you drop a brick on my foot? We start transferring in material from our childhood. I've had so many bricks dropped at my feet over my lifetime. Why aren't people taking better care of me? All of these are mm-hmm. understandable. I'm not making fun of them. I'm just trying to make a distinction between the inevitable discomforts, including agonizing discomforts, physical and emotional of life, and the ones we construct ourselves. Because that second kind of suffering is full of hope. Mm, mm -hmm. Because it means there are things we can do, including inside our own mind, not to the exclusion of social justice, et cetera, But inside our own mind, there are things we can do to reduce the construction of unnecessary suffering in ourselves and others. Great. And that second category is really what we're talking about here today, which is why you outlined it, because that is the big quotation marks, the suffering born of attachment that sometimes those lines are translated into. And that's sort of the sentence that you'll hear. So I would like to turn us toward that version of the topic, that idea of clinging, craving, and and the various problems that arise out of it, because they come simply from the recognition of an obvious fact, which is that change is inevitable. Mm -hmm. All things change. Loss is inevitable in life. So if we become narrowly attached to a singular version of the world, a singular version of ourselves, we inevitably bring upon the suffering of loss. And so the big question here really is, okay, how can we like things, or how can we have positive relationships, or how can we want ourselves to be a good way in the world, while also having a recognition of that ongoing process of things arising and things falling away, which can really just help us lighten up about the whole thing and reduce the inevitable suffering that we experience that comes from that. Like, I'm attached to you, Dad. We have an attachment. That's I will so be sweet. sad when you die. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But Vice like, versa. but I, I don't want to be less attached to you. Yeah, that's not a goal. But hey, would I want to minimize the suffering that naturally comes along when you inevitably pass away? Yeah. Would I like to relate to that in a psychologically healthy way, where I understand that it too is a big part of life? Yeah, absolutely. But do I want to be less attached to you? 
No. And that needle is what we're really trying to thread here. It's great. So there's some important distinctions. One, the first art, second art distinction, really useful. Yeah. Second distinction between, I'll call it healthy desire and unhealthy desire. Mm -hmm. So I desire your welfare. I desire at a most basic level that I make sure I push all the necessary buttons, and there are a lot of them, (laughs) to make sure this podcast recording works. And I forget it every so often. You know, there's a place for skillfulness, and we want others to flourish. We want our businesses to grow. We want our books to be read. There's a place for healthy desire. Then there's the problematic desire that gets us into trouble, in which we pursue problematic ends, sometimes with problematic means, while sometimes being problematically attached to, in that sense of attached, to certain kinds of outcomes. So we have here another important distinction, healthy desire, unhealthy desire. And then we have another distinction, which has to do with our relationship to what is moving through our mind. As it arises, there may be unwholesome desire. There may be a kind of vengeful, violent rage against someone. That's kind of problematic. Or there might be an intensely addictive greed, in some broad sense, for a particular pleasure or the accumulation of certain wealth in ways that hurt oneself and others. Mm, We're really carried away by that. Or maybe there's an arising in our relationship with others, just an intensity of wanting to be, or adulation for approval, for narcissistic supplies. Okay. These can appear in awareness And then the question is, do we become hijacked by them? Do we become identified with them? Or do we stand in a mindful freedom in relationship to this flotsam and jetsam streaming along in consciousness? Mm. That's a key distinction there. And one of the breakthroughs of the Buddha and why it's called the middle way is that he turned away from the narrowly ascetic tradition of his time, which was very life-negating, And he talked about a middle way in which we can enjoy what there is to enjoy in life, and we can be thoroughly open, especially to the fruits of wholesome desire, depending on our different circumstances, while at the same time being unattached, in a sense, in the moment of experiencing to what's passing through awareness. To simplify a little part of what you're talking about here, enjoyment, generally speaking, is not problematic. Correct. Resting in a warm bath of me going, wow, I, I love my partner. Or resting yeah. in a warm bath of, oh, this moment is really pleasant for whatever reason. Yeah. That's, that's pretty great. The problem is that we have a brain that's wired to want more of what it likes. And so we pursue those enjoyments in unhealthy ways and become narrowly attached to them. A, a metaphor of this that's been very useful for me personally is basically it's like you go to a party and you're having a really great time at that party. And then all parties inevitably come to an end, right? Every party ends. The music stops. Okay, what happens next? If you're okay to release the experience, be like, wow, that was a great party. You go home to your house, you sit down, you go to bed, whatever you do. Great, you're okay. You had a fun time at the party. You didn't bring any of those second arts along. But if you are the kind of person like perhaps me, who really wants the party to keep going, that's when you start to get into some problems and you start to become very attached to an ongoing state 
that inevitably has to come to an end. And you bring about a lot of suffering in your life that way. And you can think about that. That party metaphor is not just about parties. It is about almost everything. And you can apply it to almost any circumstance. That's a fantastic metaphor. Oh, thanks, Dan. You may recall, we went to Yosemite often when you were young. And there was a time when I ended up connecting with a fellow who became a rock climbing guide for me. He was a really sweet guy, and you ended up playing chess with him, Mm, mm -hmm. sitting out there at the pizza parlor at Curry Village, Uh, then it was called Yosemite, and the game finished, and you did well, of course, and, you know, Wally thoroughly enjoyed playing with you, and and it was over, and you wanted to play again, and you were maybe eight years old, and Wally said, all good things come to an end, and I think I might have added all bad ones, too. (laughs) very very on brand for you dad just like extremely on brand and captain positive psychology over here (laughs) captain comprehensive i yeah yeah yeah. and and exhaustive and all of that too yeah i'll take it and i i watched you and you absorbed it you were okay with it you didn't like it you were disappointed but you were sweet you rolled along and here's where I w- I'd like to add a key point, right. including to the more Buddhisty types who might be listening. What enabled you to be relatively unattached, to release that clinging? Our animal nature, we're big monkeys. We evolved to crave and suffer in order to survive the Serengeti Plains and the Stone Age. And it's natural to want to hold on to pleasure of different kinds and to push away pain in a fighting or fearful or freezing yeah, it keeps kind of you way. alive. Yep, totally. Et cetera, et cetera. To help ourselves hold life more lightly. Joseph Goldstein has a metaphor in which life is like a rope moving through our hands. Time is mm-hmm. like a rope moving through our hands. And if we squeeze that rope too tightly, friction develops and it starts to really, mm-hmm. really hurt. How do we hold it kind of lightly? While, as we'll get to, pursuing and holding on to the things that really matter, like holding on to your child's hand to pull them back from a bus coming toward them on the street. Yeah. One thing that I think enables people to hold life more lightly and to move on when they're facing disappointment is to have already repeatedly internalized many, many beneficial experiences a breath at a time to build up an underlying substrate of well-being, a core of well-being hardwired into their nervous system, which I can say you had done a lot Mm. by that point. So it was easier for you to let go. Securely attached child, pretty positive childhood experience, a lot of trust with my parent who's moving around in the background, basic belief that if this pleasant experience ends, another pleasant experience will come along at some point in the future. So I don't need to grasp this one so tightly, all that good stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's helpful to grow up in a middle-class American family and privilege advantage. Absolutely, totally. But but the fundamental principle is the same about internalization and gradually helping yourself receive. A lot of Buddhisty types are afraid to sort of take for themselves, oh, that's clinging. Well, no, that's healthy feeding. You know, if you're with someone who's hungry and they would like to eat, are they clinging to the food? No, they're engaging in a wholesome, beneficial activity of taking in nutrients. Well, we need to take in psychological nutrients in much the same way and digest them and internalize them and weave them gradually into our own fabric. So there's clearly something 
that differentiates the warm bath of enjoyment or even positive attachments, like my positive familial attachment to you or to my sister or to my mom yeah. or whatever else, from craving and clinging. Yeah. And to me, there's often a feeling associated with it that's very somatic and is very much driven by tightness and contraction in my body. And these are good somatic markers for me to be like, oh, I'm feeling this way in my body, so maybe I need to reflect on what's going on inside of my mind. You earlier alluded to some forms that problematic attachment can take, where you talked about activating strong feelings of anger towards somebody else, or a real attachment to view, I think was an example that you gave about really wanting things to turn out a particular kind of way, or being narrowly attached to an outcome that you're working really hard towards. So these are all different kinds of examples of problematic attachments. Would you mind giving maybe one or two more problematic attachments that people have? And then also just this general idea of like what differentiates those from the really okay ones? There are different ways into this, and I'll start experientially also. And again, kind of invite people to look into this themselves. For sure. Just where you started with that sense in the body of pressure or contraction. I think both of those are are really helpful to become aware of. Pressure, contraction. In it often is implicit, and it's interesting and useful to make this more explicit in your awareness, a sense of separation, feeling beleaguered or separated from all that is, or fixated on a part of reality. This must stop. This must continue. So these are useful, I think, markers. So that would be one. Second, to kind of pick up on what you just said there, but maybe more structured way, the Buddha identified four categories, four objects of attachment. Probably there's some that are outside these four, but these four are a good start, right? So the first of these is called attachment to sense desires. And this is basically in the pain-pleasure dichotomy where we get attached to or fixated about pleasures, the ongoingness of the growth or the creation of pleasure or the ending decrease or prevention of pain. Second, view, exactly what you said. And this is a very interesting one to pay attention to, especially if like you and me, you're people who are paid to have correct views. <laughs> paid to have an opinion. Yeah, yeah for sure. and to be right about stuff. And so it's especially important to be careful about that attachment to our viewpoint, sometimes with a, the top spin of righteousness. Third, it's translated routinely as attachment to rites and rituals. Rites, not R-I-G-H-T-S, like all humans are created equal. Yeah, like religious rituals. Here's the Buddha really critiquing his time. We might update it to routines, the routines that we're familiar with, or to our habits of being. We can get attached to them, to the certain schedules or to certain expectations that things will be a certain way in how we function. And if a person by their nature tends to be a little OCD-ish, you know, I'm sure I have a little genetic loading in that direction, we can get kind of attached to a fixed sense of how things should go. And then the fourth category, really interesting, attachment to self. And here's an important distinction between healthy respect for and support for and loyalty to person, the person you are, much as you could be loyal to and respectful of the person of another, like I am toward you, Forrest. That's really different 
from getting all caught up in identification with me, myself, and I, my need to be approved of, my need to be one up over you, attachment to self. And in the progression that's laid out in the Buddhist roadmap of awakening, it's interesting that attachment to self is the last to go because Mm. it's the sneakiest and slipperiest and hardest one of all. But at least we can take steps in that direction. The big one there that we've talked about on the podcast a lot is that attachment to self one, which can take a lot of different forms. Taking things very personally. At the deepest level, you can investigate the whole idea of an ego. Like, Mm. what is an ego? Who is it who is taking this breath? Is a version of a common uh, teaching phrase that is used for people in meditative practice. Or what is it that is breathing is also another, another version of it. And we might explore it a little bit more during this conversation, but I mostly want to focus on kind of the preceding layers of it, Hmm. where we're talking about self-concept, self-identity, view, all of that stuff. And to give an example of this, our self-concepts intimately drive our behavior. The way that I think about myself leads me to be different kinds of ways out in the world, including some pretty problematic ones. A version of this was me during high school. I was pretty uptight about a lot of different things. And really what it was driven from is it was driven from a lot of belief that there was sort of a right and wrong way to be in the world, and I was being the right way and other people were being the wrong way. And this led to a deep sense of unfairness, that life was really unfair. Why are all of these people who are doing the things the wrong way being rewarded for them? And why am I, who am doing things the right way, being punished? And this led to, you know, a lot of of confusion and self-blame and all of these problematic states inside of myself. So why did I keep thinking this way? So actually a really deep question, if you, if you get on it. A, that viewpoint wasn't fundamentally true. It was just a view. And yeah, like there are probably better and worse ways of being out in the world, but a lot of this stuff is constructed. It's highly individualized. It's deeply based on personal experience. It's, it's just a view. And two, I wasn't deriving any value from it. It was making my life actively worse. So why did I keep on thinking that way? It's actually a really deep question. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. It's like, wow. Yeah. And it was because so much of myself was wrapped up in this view of the world. And so breaking that down took a lot of time. It took Mm -hmm. a lot of reflection. It took a lot of allying with the defense, to use the psychological term for it, where I needed to become more open inside of myself, and I I needed to see the ways in which my protector parts, to use the language from internal family systems, were trying to come to my defense to protect me from a world that I viewed as dangerous and problematic and not loving in a lot of ways, particularly with other kids. And it was just a long and painful process. But I don't really have a perfect answer to that question, like why are we so closely tied to the views that we have even when they bring us suffering? So anyways, that was a story I wasn't really planning on sharing, but I would love your your reflection on any of this, Dad. I'm slowing down because I'm feeling the weight of what you're saying. And yeah. You know, to really kind of feel that. It's a it's a real thing. And I'm I'm really happy for you that you have gone through a process, obviously, of self-awareness about this and freedom about it. It's really about our relationship to our thoughts, our feelings, the whole of our psyche. We're animals, so the stream of consciousness is constructed, rooted in a 600 million year history of the nervous system, and a lot of flotsam and jetsam. A lot of weird stuff happens in the mind, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing though is, are we identified with it? Have we hopped on board, and are we 
so close to it that we can't get any distance from it? And are we continuing to reinforce it along the way? And you're getting yeah. free of that process. Totally. And, and that's, and I really want to take just one second here to highlight something that you're saying, which is that that process made me more free. The process itself was uncomfortable and did involve a certain amount of emotional and psychological <laughs> suffering. I'm not going to lie about that. But end of the day, it made me happier, it made me more relaxed, and it made my behavior more free. It being your growth process. And my, my relaxation of attachment. Yeah. My relaxation of attachment to that view, to that self-concept, yeah. to that self-identity. Yeah. And this is where we start to move into the both-and territory. How can we both have that sort of light and freer relationship with the world while also appreciating the value of certain views. The first element listed typically in that Noble Eightfold Path is right view. So there's an appreciation, certainly even in Buddhism, of the benefit of certain kinds of clarity or discernment or recognition of what's actually true. So how do we do both, right? How do we be attached to the holds on a rock climbing face, which I hope to be <laughs> re-engaging in a couple of months this summer when, as I rehabilitate my arms, uh, et cetera. How do we do both? And that's where I sometimes think about teaching a workshop. You know, I teach sometimes in Buddhist settings. Buddhist aggressiveness is not an oxymoron. You know, <laughs> something like that. How do we get involved in what John yeah, Lewis, totally, bless his memory, totally. called good trouble in a way that doesn't let hatred invade our heart, as Dr. Martin mm. Luther King Jr. taught, for example? Yeah, that's a very, very, very interesting exploration. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well. 
If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. Well, here we are. So, Dad, <laughs> particularly the tightly wound aspects of this. Sure. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about yeah. that earnest pursuit of good attachments mm-hmm. toward the end. But right now with the relaxation part of it, I'm going to paint you a, a scenario. Very, very, very common scenario, okay? Someone's either in a formal relationship with another person, or they would really like to be in a relationship with that person. Maybe they're not in a formal relationship with them. There's somebody they really like. They, they sense a possibility of growing closeness. But end of the day, things happen. That other person doesn't want to be in a relationship with them. You know, just, ah, sorry. But there's this natural attachment that arises. We have a desire for something from somebody else. I'm sure a lot of people have walked into your office and been like, hey, doc, here's the situation. Mm-hmm. How do you help them start to relax that natural attachment that is closely tied to a lot of biological desires that people have in their life? How do you help them loosen the fist? Super good question. The foundation is self-awareness and mindful acceptance of whatever in this moment is the truth of your experience. Hmm. So if in this moment there is a combination of grieving, self-criticism, anger at the person, perhaps the lover you wish you had, maybe anger at a rival who has swooped in and drawn that person away from you. Perhaps there's what's arising or old feelings coming from your own insecure attachment, maybe as a kid. It's there. Past experiences, yeah. Yep, it's the whole package. Tara Brock has a lovely way of talking about it. This too belongs. Mm. This too. So that's absolutely bedrock. There's nothing in this Being Well podcast, and there's certainly nothing in Buddhism that's about positive thinking per se, or in any way, shape, or form denying what's actually true. This is Zen saying, nothing left out. And we, of course, always are leaving some things out, but at least we can not leave out the fact that we're going to leave some things out. And include that, <laughs> including, and always be asking, who's not at the table? And also, what, what is not being included in my own mind right now? What am I holding at bay? I want to just highlight that really quickly, that idea of the internal experience, like what emotions are you not allowing yourself to include, I think was totally fundamental to my change process, the one that I described earlier. Yeah, that's very good. Because underlying and very often underpinning, I'll call it either wrong view or unwise view or attachment to even wise view, Mm -hmm. there's an underlying emotional basis for that, including the ways in which that attachment serves functions of keeping certain feelings at bay. 
often. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's absolutely foundational. Next, I think there's a little checklist because, of course, on brand, I've got three <laughs> questions here. <laughs> Go ahead, Dad. I love it. Love it. You got it. We got to maintain the three by three matrix on the grid sheet and just do, oh, do yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, that's it. Well, I, I I haven't read it, but the title alone just teaches so much about it. The checklist manifesto. Yeah, and you are a checklist manifesto kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of improvement in medicine when they use checklists. And anyway, <laughs> so first question: Is it a wholesome end? I'm using mm. the word wholesome loosely. You decide for yourself what is wholesome broadly. In other words, what is conducive pragmatically to the happiness and welfare of yourself and or others? And even beyond that, maybe if you want to bring in a more religious sense of that, which is virtuous and worthy, okay. So you would review this. Okay, uh, this particular person or the desire to have love, is that a wholesome end? Yes. Mm-hmm. Check that box. Next, am I pursuing a wholesome end with wholesome means? Mm. Often people are pursuing wholesome ends with unwholesome means, unskillful means, et cetera. For example, as I think you've said, you admitted, so I wanted to help you in school. You know, I support my kid, blah, blah. Uh, Yeah, I know where we're going. Yeah, you would come in with a paper, and, you know, I'm a writer, I'm an editor, and you'd be like, hey, Dad, this is my first draft of my sixth grade book report. What do you think? I'm like 12 years old. At yeah, the yeah. yeah. And I'm like, oh, sure, Forrest. Here, let me <laughs> let me just take a whack at it. And you'd come back with, you oh know, like 100 corrections. And oh, my corrections were valid. Sure. The, the end was valid, but very unskillful, very <laughs> counterproductive, wrongheaded, and Thankfully, you know, we, we grew you, out of this over time, in yeah. part because I just stopped bringing you my papers for yeah, a minute, but we eventually I, grew out of it. No, it's just so unskillful, Rick. <laughs> and that's really important because sometimes we yeah. can be seduced yeah. by the virtue of our ends and mm-hmm. lose sight of the ways in which our means are counterproductive, including for people like me who can be determined to a fault. Sure. And who can lose sight of the greater good because I'm so driven to a certain goal not realizing the collateral damage along the way. Okay, that's the second question. Money question often is, if you're pursuing wholesome ends with wholesome means, can you do so while being fundamentally at peace with whatever happens? Mm. Now that peacefulness may include grieving, the loss of a beautiful possibility. It may include a sorrowful, compassionate sense of injustice Mm. while still in the core of your being, can you retain a fundamental peacefulness with regard to that? Those are three really, really good questions. Yeah, I think that those are fantastic questions. And to just say them again, are you pursuing a wholesome end? Are you pursuing a wholesome end with wholesome means? And then the last question, can you pursue that wholesome end with wholesome means with a fundamental peacefulness attached to whatever happens. And I think that's just a great framework for people when thinking about their desires and how they're relating to their desires. And I wanna use this as an opportunity to go back and edit the story a little tiny bit that I told earlier about my own relationship to attachment, where I was very attached to this particular view of things. And During that story, I said some version of, I don't know why I did that. And I've had now 15 minutes to reflect on this. And I'd love your take on this, Dad. I think it's really actually clear why I did that. I did that because I was trading one pain for another pain. 
Mm. I had an allegiance to a vision of myself, and that vision of myself was causing me to suffer. But it was probably causing me to suffer less, mm. or at least causing me to suffer differently than the ways in which I would have to suffer if I were going to break that view. And so we see that we do this all the time, and we see this through our attachments, right? So to continue this example that we're talking about here, you're attached to a theoretical relationship. What are you getting from that attachment? What are you not having to grieve mm. in the process of staying attached? Yeah. What are the pains that you are avoiding? And we can see how there's often this incredibly thin line between attachment and aversion, between pulling toward and pushing away. And often in trying to be attached to certain things, it's because we're trying to avoid other kinds of experiences. We're pushing other experiences away. Do you mind saying what was the primary pain that you were defending against in my language by being attached to your views? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I think that there are layers to it. And I think a lot of it was experiential avoidance. We talk sometimes about the dreaded experience, which mm. is this singular fear, singular experience, often of a particular kind of emotion that a person is avoiding because facing it would just be extremely overwhelming for them. And I was a very relational kid. And so I had a really deep desire to be loved by other people, to feel appreciated by them, to have people like me really more than anything else, to be enjoyed. And I think that part of this attachment to like there's a right way and I'm doing it the right way and they're doing it the wrong way. It became a way essentially for me to invalidate it when other, I felt like other people didn't like me. Huh. Like this is the reason that they don't like me. They don't like me because they're doing it the bad way and I'm doing it the good way. And it becomes this whole other thing where it becomes mm. a justification for why I wasn't getting what I actually wanted from the world. Yeah, And of course, the more that I pursued that, the further away the goal lay for me over and over again in ways large and small. And it became reinforcing because I didn't want to feel wrong, God forbid, mm. because nobody wants to feel wrong, but I really didn't want to feel wrong. And so it became like a snowball rolling down a hill yeah. where you just become more and more and more committed to a way of being because changing is an admission of guilt, yeah. essentially. Mm. And that sucks. So I think that was a lot of it. And I think it took exiting the situations I was in, doing a lot of personal growth stuff, going to therapy, the whole thing, to separate from that self-identity and to just relax a little bit about right and wrong and the nature of the world and who the good people are and who the bad people are, while still having, of course, moral views about the whole thing. Ooh-ee. I hope that people get value from this. and. It's really touching, mm. really touching for us. Well, thanks, Dad. Yeah. And true, yeah. And to kind of name it, there's this moment, this experience that we've all had in which we release about something. And we talk about it as a release. We release from, and then often alongside it, there's a releasing into. Mm -hmm. We let go mm -hmm. of and we let go into yeah. in yeah. one movement, yeah. And... I think it's really important to appreciate that shift that occurs that you've had big time over some time. And then right now, even there's some realization here hmm. and to mm -hmm. be, to be real about it and to appreciate it in others and to appreciate it in ourselves and to you know, foster the conditions that open us up to that shift. And one of those conditions, I think, is to 
cultivate a general mental flexibility, as Steve Hayes in ACT talks about, a flexibility, including related to your own mind, and a broad sort of looseness that includes a valuing of getting off it. (laughs) That's a phrase from our 70s human potential where you get off it, where you go, oh, wow, I've been like that, and I get off it. Yeah. You relax, you release. Yeah. yeah, it's actually ironic and unfortunate that sometimes when we get off it with another person, that's when they really pile on somehow, mm, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though we're now off it. But anyway, and valuing, getting off it. Yeah, there's just a lot in this. And we were stoked for this conversation and we didn't quite know where it was going to lead. And I think we've gone to a super interesting place here, but it's a little bit different than the one that oh, I yeah. expected us to go to. So we've we've wandered into into unexplored territory here and we're definitely off the beaten path of the the little note outline that I prep for each of these conversations. Yeah. So I'm just in in real time thinking about this whole topic. And man, I, I think that's so much of this has to do with an expectance of short-term pain for long-term gain. Relaxing attachment sucks most of the time. It is not a pleasant experience in the moment because the mind wants to be attached for all of the reasons that you outlined before, Dad. We're big monkeys. We have biological needs. We have attachment desires. We want to keep on keeping on. And so most of the time, whether you're going through a big self-identity change or you're just relaxing your attachment to the idealized relationship or to some outcome out in the world, there is pain in that moment. And so I think that part of the process is getting real about there being a certain degree of uncomfortable emotion that is going to arise alongside the relaxation of attachment. And then we can do various things to fill ourselves up. We can do things alongside the discomfort to help ourselves manage it. But I think it's, unless you are an extremely practiced person, the moment of releasing the pleasurable experience, whatever that is, just comes with a certain degree of discomfort. First, everything you're saying, remarkable that we're able to talk about this. I am reminded of two big themes that I want to make sure we talk about. And they they can help us so that while in the present, we are releasing reality as it moves through, Mm -hmm. or as we move through time, either way, the, the streaming is happening. We actually can be so in the streaming and so in the mm. present that even the most exquisite pleasures are unclung to. Yeah, totally. And even the most agonizing pains are not hated, not gone to war with. Yeah, That totally. is possible. And absolutely. And I'm just highlighting that that is a very high bar of practice. Big bar. Yeah, high bar. totally. All good. So, <laughs> let's, so let's talk about it. So the grosser forms yeah. of that release often happen retroactively where mm. we realize mm-hmm. that we've been plugged in, we've been yeah. on it, using that yeah. 70s language. And we realize, oh, I've been plugged in for hours. Time to do some releasing. Yeah. yeah, since that conversation and gradually a certain amount of realization comes in and the better angel, your, uh, angels of your nature start coming forward, you start remembering your happy place, as one of Laurel's friends said to her when she was in junior high school. All that happens. Okay, as we get more and more proficient in practice uh, and the people who are completely enlightened, and there are some, it's more rare than an Olympic gold medal, I think, but it still occurs. They are so transparently surrendered in the present that Mm. there's no clinging whatsoever to whatever passes through awareness. That ongoingness of liberated presence and functioning in the world 
with utter release is definitely available. It's, it's definitely something we work toward. So there are two things I want to talk about that can be factors there, and I'll name them briefly. The first is warm-heartedness. Fundamental principle in Buddhism. We've been talking mainly so far about psychology and ideas, and there's so much that is also situated in other great, I'll call them religious traditions around the world, and also secular humanism, that's about heartfeltness, mm. love, compassion for ourselves. So we approach life with a whole heart, and we practice for the sake of others too. Well, that can really help us hold life more lightly because we start feeling filled up already by love and we're more able to release. And we start to realize that our own contractions, our own pressures, our own attachments are like a heavy boot on the neck of other people. So that's a major thing to call out, the principle of, of the heart. A second principle can start out more intellectual, but it becomes extremely penetrating and far-reaching, in which you start to recognize that the neuropsychological root of what might be called craving has to do with the habitual tendency of the brain, designed by evolution to do this, to thingify what is passing through awareness to essentialize it is the technical term, to reify it, to thingify it, let's say, to turn complex, dynamic, turbulent, neuropsychological phenomena into things that can be fought with or controlled and possessed or and even identified with. And one of the most powerful fundamental teachings of Buddhism is to develop increasingly penetrating and liberating insight into the nature of all phenomena, both mm. thoughts and things. And the nature of all of them is that they are made of parts that are connected and changing, thus empty in the technical term of absolute identity, solidity, or existence. Mm. Processes, or as Buckminster Fuller put it, I seem to be a verb. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that that's a great point because what it does is it lets us see the, the space between the atoms a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. Whether they're the atoms of an object, the atoms of a person, the atoms of an experience, we're all going on being. We are verbing right now. That's right, which can give us the hope and the courage to relax the present as the future arises. Yeah. And we start to recognize that the nature of all of our inner internal phenomena, certainly, and in some senses, physical phenomena too, cups, gophers and galaxies, right? That we start to realize, oh, all of it is process. All of mm -hmm. it is interdependent. All of it is interrelated so that no thought or thing is actually capable of being attached to. Mm. Ah, What are you connecting the boat to? Yeah, yeah. This element of insight, of observing directly, not based on theory, but directly, wow, all of my experiences. It's easier to start with experiences, and over time you start to recognize that this extends to physical objects as well, and the whole universe, and certainly your body, ultimately. Or in the metaphor I've talked about in neurodharma, eddies in a stream. Mm. They exist as patternings in reality that are made of parts that are connected and changing and arise dependently 
upon everything, everything else. And when you start to recognize more and more that all thoughts and things are like eddies in the stream, as I say it, you start to love the eddy while being the stream. So do you think that it's that warm-hearted quality that distinguishes useful attachment from less useful attachment? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to find some of the distinctions between those two as a way into talking about yeah. those useful attachments that we were mentioning earlier, how it's totally appropriate to have a moral perspective. It's totally appropriate to look out in the world and go, wow, that's really messed up, and I'm oh. fairly attached to changing it in a useful way. While, of course, at the same time, understanding the limits of my influence, the things I can't control, all of that good stuff. And, and for me, again and again, it feels like there's a warm-hearted quality associated with it. That's really interesting. I do think that that warm-heartedness, you're right, is often a very big indicator. Now, we have to be yeah. a little careful because sometimes that warm-heartedness can get caught up in things like jealousy and possessiveness. Sure. Or yeah. as research has shown, oxytocin sounds so great, right? Well, one thing that oxytocin can do is promote the sense of us against them. Yeah, and you've got a lot of viewpoints out there in the world where there are a lot of people who think that they're doing something out of love, and you just you take three steps back and you look at it and you go, holy moly. Yeah. You know, so, so you want to be careful quite careful with that. this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. I think broadly, there's this metaphor uh, you find in Tibetan Buddhism of the jewel in the lotus. And one is wisdom and one is compassion. Mm. And the two together. So I want to, I guess maybe I know we're kind of coming to the end here. And, and if we could maybe swing it back to the start. Yeah, let's do that. The whole point of this is to find out what's useful for you, grounded in the truth of things. It is said that the deep root of suffering is ignorance or delusion, not recognizing the, in particular, relationship between craving and suffering, and even more deeply, being ignorant about or not recognizing these qualities of all phenomena as being made of parts that are connected and changing. And so, as we've talked here, the invitation for anyone listening is to really keep looking at, well, what do you see? What seems true to you? What do you recognize? What increases your suffering? And what increases your happiness? Mm. What increases suffering in others based on your own conduct? And what increasing increases the happiness and welfare of others that you can actually do in this world? That's really, really, really the bottom line. Really well said. As I've been thinking about this, having this conversation with you, there's just such a big difference between enjoying a process and wanting that process to keep on going the same way. Mm. In my experience, a lot of this comes to my relationship with enjoyment. Because mm. I'm somebody who wants to enjoy things. I'm a gregarious person. I, I want to have a lot of enjoyable experiences out in the world. I like pleasure, all of that good stuff. I'm enjoying drinking my coffee right now, but I'm not really attached to keeping on drinking my coffee. And that distinction is super useful for me. It's been a very, very useful one in my life, and it's one that I keep on returning to these days. Keep on enjoying my experience, but slowly relax my attachment to the experience keeping on. I am very interested as a neuropsychologically informed person rested in evolution to really try to understand what could help this big craving monkey to become more at ease with pleasures or pains moving through awareness. And one of the things that can really help us is to find contentment in the present. Mm. And that word, to be content, rather than discontent, 
I think so many of us, we're discontent or we have a kind of habit of discontent that's continually oriented toward becoming, leaning in to the next thing. And that's different from skillful means of good planning and taking the long view and having a 30-year plan for your retirement. There, there's a place for that, or the legacy you'll leave behind. There's a place for that. But that's really separate from this psychological process you can be aware of that finds it really quite difficult to sustain the sense of the enoughness of the present, mm. which therefore is a wonderful exploration for people as an experiential practice to see how long you can stay with a feeling of the enoughness of the present so that there's no grasping for anything else. Mm. Can we identify the sense of feeling content in the present without any sense of something missing or wrong? That's a mm. wonderful thing to cultivate over time and to find the things yeah. that help us rest in that, including not being mistreated by others and being able to have reasonably decent physical health and physical circumstances and an inner kind of growing well-being. These are factors. But to call it out, can we really abide here and now without fighting with life in any way or chasing in a pressured, insistent way anything in the future? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really great summary of pretty much everything we've talked about here today. This is such a rich topic. Oh boy. And it's also a topic that connects to about a thousand other topics, as yeah. you could probably tell while listening to this episode. So it naturally just pulls us in so many different directions when we're trying to have a relatively focused hour-long conversation about a thing. And we've also done a number of other episodes on related topics, like mm. uh, changing self-identity, how to change your brain, all of this very stuff that relates to this central idea of what's going on with attachment and clinging and craving and how over time can we relax into the present moment as you're describing dad and enjoy life without being attached to that enjoyment of it. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Rick today. The episode was deep and broad and we explored a ton of material that has been immensely useful for me personally. We started our conversation on attachment by talking about Buddhism's four noble truths, the first of which is often translated as life is suffering, and the second of which is often translated as suffering comes from attachment, or something along the lines of that. But we can see how these are simplifications of complex and nuanced ideas through Rick's wonderful line, does corn suffer? The idea being that it's not so much that life is inherently suffering. Of course, there are aspects of life that are not suffering. It's much more that suffering is a part of life, and particularly that it's tied to the nature of our nervous system. And then, in the second line, the translation of that word as attachment leads to a lot of confusion. The actual meaning of the root word is better translated as thirst, and there's this kind of clinging or craving of experiences that absolutely does lead to a lot of suffering. Because the point is to see reality clearly. And the reality of things is that loss is inevitable. All things arise, all things fall away. And the only real constant in the world is change. So when we become attached to some object, when we crave it, when we cling to it, whether that object is a literal physical object 
or a person or a relationship or a situation or, hey, some aspect of your own self-identity or ego, the unavoidable outcome is that that thing will be lost to us. That's life. We're all going to die. Our relationships are going to fade away. Things are going to change. So then the question is, how do we relate to that? And this connects to the teaching of the middle path, where there's often this fundamental misunderstanding of what attachment means. Because counterintuitively, relaxing some of our attachments can actually support us in enjoying life more fully, because we've already accepted the reality that joy is also temporary and will pass. So when it does, hey, it's not such a big deal. We then spend some time talking about what differentiates more wholesome forms of attachment from more unwholesome forms of attachment. And it's often really possible to feel the problematic forms of attachment in our body. There's this tightness or insistence or just squeeze that occurs inside of ourselves that, at least for me, is a big hallmark of when I've become a little too attached to something specific. And Rick gave a very useful roadmap for separating some more useful or wholesome forms of attachment from some more problematic ones. And it's three questions. The first one is, is this a wholesome end? The second one is, am I pursuing this wholesome end with wholesome means? And the third question, really critically, is can I be essentially okay with whatever happens? One of the big things that people become attached to is their own identity their views, their self-concept, how they think about themselves, the attachment to the localized ego altogether. And a big place where we can work to relax our attachment is to all of those views that we have about ourselves. And I shared my own story of this, where certainly in high school, when I was a bit younger, I was very attached to the ideas that there were right and wrong ways to be out in the world. I was doing things the right way. Other people were doing things the wrong way. And I was really dogmatic about that. I was very tightly coupled with that idea. And over the course of the conversation with Rick, I was able to do some real investigation of that, uh, an exploration of what maybe its roots were or what some of the reasons were that I had taken on those behaviors. Because what I've certainly found in myself over and over again is that almost always problematic behavior out in the world is closely tied to problematic attachment to a narrow view of the self. And the more that we can lighten up about those narrow views, the freer that we actually become out in the world. To emphasize a point that we made throughout the conversation, the problem here is not enjoyment. There are plenty of enjoyable things out in the world that it is really wonderful to enjoy fully. But there's a big difference between floating in a warm bath of enjoyment and wanting that warm bath to go on and on and on. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hope you did as well. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it. You can also find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening.